Welcome to the Atlanta Tennis Podcast. Every episode is titled, It Starts With Tennis and Goes From There. We talk with coaches, club managers, industry business professionals, technology experts, and anyone else we find interesting. We want to have a conversation as long as it starts with tennis. Hey, hey, this is Sean with the Atlanta Tennis Podcast. We are in the Rejuvenate studio in Buford, Georgia, and this is our conversation with Rich Nayer, who is founder of Conga Sports and publisher of the Tennis Club Business Periodical since 2014. Rich considers himself a disruptor in the tennis industry and is extremely knowledgeable about the finances of the major tennis organizations as well as the business of tennis in general. Let us know what you think about what Rich has to say. Hey, Rich, I'll start with this. Who are you and uh, why do we care? Oh, my name is Rich Nayer. Um, I started out in tennis in San Diego as a community tennis organizer. And I was actually on the board of the San Diego District Tennis Association. And I evolved over the last 25 years into a disruptor in tennis. <laughs> Every sense of the word with both my companies, uh, with the the newsletter, Tennis Club Business, and with my new company, Conga Sports. We're disrupting the tennis industry and we continue to do so, even more so next year. I like that's, it. So is that that's your job title, right? Hi, I'm Rich and I'm Disruptor in Chief. Chief, <laughs> chief <laughs> Disruptor, yes. I like the Chief Disruptor, that's good. That's, uh, that's, a, that's a better way to use the, uh, the executive term. Um, and we've got Bobby here as always. I appreciate you uh, making time. Bobby's the uh, the brains behind the operation. That should scare you right away, Rich. It doesn't. <laughs> so, Rich, first and foremost, you do not have it. People tell you that you don't have a New York accent. So, where are you from originally? Um, you know, when people ask me on the phone where I'm from because they detect an accent, I always say Ireland. And, uh, and everyone believes that no one ever questions that so but i am from germany uh, moved here in 1985. what brought you to the states i used to work for a company a british company in germany and they had a branch office in king of prussia pennsylvania uh. <laughs> and they uh, they just moved me over here i wanted to come here I, I visited the country a year earlier and I loved it and I wanted to live and work here and they said, yeah, do a good job and we'll transfer you. And so they did. Fantastic. And how did you gravitate towards tennis? Huh. In King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, my neighbor, a Germ another German, he taught me tennis and he's a very bad player. And he talked about <laughs> bad things. It was just terrible. But I got bitten by the bug. And although I didn't work in tennis, it was uh, something I started doing. And um, five, five, six years later, I moved to California. And I started um, looking around where to play. And I found a tennis club close to where I lived. And it was the Bobby Riggs Tennis Club in Encinitas. And um, I traded membership for writing the newsletter, to be honest. Fantastic. <laughs> and I started managing um, e evening events. 
So people liked the way I put the matches together. They just loved it. And I, more and more people came to my evening events. And uh, then I started my own group, left the club and uh, used this club and other clubs as host clubs for nightly drop-in tennis. That's mm -hmm. how it's 20, last month it was 25 years ago. Wow. And in the meantime, boy, uh, thousands of drop-in tennis I've done and with, with thousands of players. And, uh, and I've actually written a book about it. Drop-in tennis secrets. Um, the, one of the um, side effects of the way I do drop-in tennis is that the host clubs we play at, they usually um, benefit from it by adding members to their clubs. Right. People who play with me, if the club is a good club, has clean courts, nice management, and everything is right, they want to join that club. So over the 20, last 25 years, I don't know how many hundreds and hundreds of tennis players I was able to add to local clubs everywhere I was. So how did you gravitate to becoming a disruptor in tennis? And But I tell you, the uh, just to follow up on this one thing, my drop in tennis in San Diego was so, was so popular. We had a Friday night at La Costa Resort in Carlsbad. Yeah. And they only have seven or had seven lighted courts, right? They had 24 courts or something, but only seven were lighted. We had up to 60 players coming Friday nights to wow. play in tennis and then go out afterwards for drinks and food. How I became a, a disruptor. Well, in 2014, I started writing. Oh, first, I, I worked for the USTA on the USTA Tennis Link team. That was my start in really in in uh, in the tennis industry in 2010. I was the team lead for USDA adult leagues and NTRP ratings. And okay. In that uh, position, I was very lucky to travel across the country, visit all the sections, the 17 sections, and train the league coordinators on leagues and on ratings. And so I, I started to know this organization quite well. I left, uh, this was actually in 2006. I left in 2010, started my own company. And in 2014, I began writing the uh, newsletter Tennis Club Business, which uh, was pretty basic in the first few years. Not, nothing nothing special about it. I just uh, collected a lot of interesting items and put them on a page. And um, but later on, I, I found myself in a position where I noticed stuff about the USTA that I didn't like. And um, I started writing about it. So I became the, the only publication in tennis that doesn't toe the line. And, um, and the more I wrote about these, these things that I discovered, the more readers I got. And uh, my readers like what I'm writing. How can I say it? That, that's why I called you. I'm like, I like this guy. He is tearing up the USTA. Like, I got to talk to him and find out what his motivations are. You know, I have about 10,000 readers. One thing you, you guys know, of course, when you write something as a, like a newsletter, 
the subject line determines how many opens you get, right? Okay, I'll give you an example. When my subject line is, um, let's say, um, X, XY tennis club adds another tennis court to the, or another pickleball court, then my open rate may be 10%. When I write uh, that the USTA's Lake Nona um, compound in uh, Orlando burned down, everyone dead, and my open rate will be 80%. <laughs> so, but I'm very happy that my open rate is, is now lately always between 35 and 48%, which is, uh, which is very unique in the industry. Yeah, that's a good number. I think ours, and these are our open rates. I don't know what Bobby's are. I don't know how, how well he tracks his, but ours are pretty low in the, in the 20s. And, and still, 20s is okay. But in that case, it's also is 20% of our email database, those that are currently active in any of our programs or what's going on with us. And in that case, okay, we've got, you know, little Johnny's playing tennis with us and he's got a thing coming up next week and it's bring a friend week. So his parents might've opened that up, but it's the people that are still on the list that are kind of paying attention because they like the content, but their kid isn't actively playing tennis with us that may or may not ever actually open it, but they're still on our subscriber list. Do you have an ability to know how many of the 10,000 readers, and this might be inside information you don't, you don't want to share, but how many of the 10,000 readers never open anything? Like, can I tell how many of mine are going to the junk folder and I'm just kind of wasting my constant contact spending? Yeah, I can tell. I can tell everything. Uh, how many uh, people are active? How many are inactive? Um, how, how long ago did they open the email, uh, the newsletter last time? Um, I, and I guess I, I should I should change the question. Do you pay attention to that better than I do? Because I know I know mine. I have that information. I don't think I use it as well as I should. Yeah, I pay attention to it every every month. I look at the bounce rate, for instance. Um, very very lucky that I only have like sometimes only ten bounces, <laughs> sending ten thousand emails and only ten bounces. No spam complaints. And. Um, I, uh, I have all the executives of the USTA on my list. They all read it. I know when they open it and if they open it, I know all these things. So I like that. I like what I'm writing, but they are reading it. Uh, that's good. Yeah, well, there's the thing, because what did you say? You got a response from the USTA. Somebody asked you to write something good about them in response to some of your aggressive articles and, and content that you've put out there. They actually came to you and said, hey, can you do something good? How, how did that play out? Um, I, um, yeah. Uh, what's his name? John Yandel. He writes a newsletter. He asked me if I could write something for him. And I said, yeah, what do you want? He said, something good about the USDA. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, um, there's one subject I know a whole lot about. And I think it's the best program ever in tennis. And this is uh, the USDA Adult League program. So I wrote about that program and how it developed over time. And I interviewed people who were involved with it in the beginning, like John Embry and others. And um, he liked it. I think he's publishing it this month, next month. That's a good response. Yeah. He paid so, so you're happy with the adult league program. And one of the things I want to talk about today with you 
and been trying not to get too long-winded because I'm sure the three of us could talk forever. Um, but the you like the USTA Adult League program. I've heard you say good things, even if it was offline to me, about USTA Southern. And even if that was just financial budgeting, maybe we just make money down here because we have no choice because they're just that many tennis players. But we've got in Atlanta, we've got a unique league that in that everybody knows as is Atlanta is Alta. Yeah. And in our case, it basically competes with USTA yeah. because it's a, it's it's almost the same thing and it's cheaper. So but cheap. There's a big difference between the two. Okay. One big difference. And it's not only the back tax, <laughs> it is where they play. USDA tends to play more in clubs and uh, regular clubs and parks, and Alta does not. Um, they do maybe in few cases, but the main, the main locations for their matches is uh, subdivisions. Bobby, have you seen, I've, I've never thought about the difference of, are there more USTA in public parks and more Alta in private neighborhoods? Have you noticed that difference? Uh, have I noticed? No, I, I, I mean. I've never thought about that. There's a three to one greater Alta player than there is USTA player. So I think that's contributes. There's just so much more numbers. People want convenience. So they're more likely to play out of their neighborhood. And also, as we talked about on numerous occasions, unfortunately for the USTA, they do not get the prime seasons here. The prime seasons would be considered spring or fall as far as our weather is concerned. And those are the main Alta seasons where the USTA has to deal with more summer, which is hot. So, and you have people traveling and then they deal with winter or their two, you know, gender specific, excuse me, specific leagues. So, you know, Alta, rules the day here so that's why i love always to talk to people from outside of atlanta because we have such a unique perspective because of what we're subjected to and it you know it, it's interesting to hear how the police it, there aren't a lot of tennis only clubs in atlanta to begin with and that that was fun of you know speaking of walid when he was trying to introduce courts every place else builds it for a private club when, when you come to Atlanta, you're really not going for a private club. It, you either have a golf club where tennis is treated as an amenity or an, a subdivision where it is an amenity. So it's very unique that most places are not bottom line driven. They're driven more by customer service. And no, they the, don't, they're not only treated, the, the, the clubs, the golf clubs, they're not only treated as an amenity, they treated us the black sheep stepchild. Oh, uh, the redheaded stepchild. No question. I was, a, a, I mean, absolutely. I was a di director at a, you know, a, they put in quarter of a million dollars. They put on the sand traps and I couldn't get a new net. So, you know, and, and when I was hired there, the description by the general manager of a successful tennis program was one in which he doesn't hear about it because he didn't want complaints. So as long as I, I, was able to put any fires out before it reached his desk. That was in his judgment, a successful tennis program. So absolutely no question about it. Yeah, but you know, the, the subject Alta brings up something really interesting for me. And that is how in, how they invented and how they innovated the tennis in, in Atlanta and how successful they were. I in interviewed the president a few years ago and asked him, why is he not expanding into other areas? And I don't remember his answer. They are not. No. 
But wouldn't you think that some of the USTA sections would be interested in doing something like that and expanding their reach? And the answer is no, they would not, and because they can't. They they don't, they cannot think outside of that proverbial box. It is not possible for them to, to innovate anything in tennis. And um, <laughs> as an example, I, uh, uh, the Southern California Tennis Association, where I am here, when they were still in, on, in speaking terms with me, <laughs> they uh, asked me about Alta. And I told them what Alta is all about. And I told them about the back tax. And they said, yeah, they were looking for a new incentive for league captains. If, if I think a back tag would be a good incentive. And I said, yeah, it's a great thing if you can make it work. But I said, you have to make it the same way. You have to make it lightweight. It has to be plastic. Yes, it has yes. to be round, round edges. So it can't hurt anyone. And it has to be just simple with your name on it. That's it. And, you know, the Alta backtracks, they are little round discs. So, you know what they did? They came back to me a few weeks later with a prototype. <laughs> it was a metal star with pointed edges. Oh, good. On all sides, where oh, you hold dear. it, you already had bloody fingers, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, it only lasted one season. No yeah. one liked it. Well, what was it uh, that Bobby talks about? He talks about the example of T2 tennis here that was even, in my opinion, even smarter than the bag tag, which was the car magnet. And I oh. think about that. We've got car magnets for tennis for children. It's that same concept, only the bag tag is inside your car and you hear the clink, clink, clink of the bag tag when you walk onto the court. But those are already tennis enthusiasts. What Joel did at T with T2 with his Flex League is, number one, forgot to trademark the phrase Flex League. That was a mistake. But also put on those those car magnets. And if I'm a champion, I'm a city champion of middle of nowhere Georgia, and I'm going to put that on my car. Heck yeah. But now I'm just advertising for the league I'm playing in. Yeah. It, it's fantastic. And some of those little ideas that all of a sudden you realize, holy cow, that's that's a fantastic concept. To be able to you do something about, like that is fun to see. You guys know about the Florida license plate, right? They have the tennis license plate, use it as a fundraiser. Oh, really? Fabulous idea. Yeah. Doing it for about, I don't know, 10, 15 years. They made hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars for their foundation with the with this uh, license plate. Ever, and uh, and you're, if you're a league player or a um, member of the USDA in Florida, you want that license plate. I would think so. Absolutely. And leagues are leagues are such an interesting thing. We've got so many of them here in Atlanta. It's a it's a saturated market almost. And Bobby and I talk about that because we think to ourselves, hey, we got a great idea for a new league. And it doesn't necessarily matter if it's a great idea. It's not definitely going to work. I'm not saying it's definitely not going to work, but it's not definitely going to work because you've just got so many things going on. And Rich, you've got a league that you're that you've put together in California and one of the things we want to know is is it the magic league <laughs> that is going to come into Atlanta and blow everybody away and the last time we spoke you said that it was it was flexible in its format that we could you could you could put it in 
in a place and specify it to the needs of the area. And I don't know if you said it that specifically. So that's that's how my brain took what you told me. Am I even close to what Conga is, is going to be? Um, we have evolved since then. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. We, we have evolved. Um, it is hard to compete with a USTA legacy program like Adult Leaks, and especially at certain times of the year. There are times of the year when the main leaks are over in summer and before the fall leaks are starting where you have more success. But um, we are not doing leaks at all right now. Uh, I, tr I tried World Team Tennis League with my groups. We did some tests here. I didn't like it that much, especially since it's such an old program, World Team Tennis, not mm -hmm. only from a format, but from a, a technology point of view, if you look at their site. Um, we decided to throw our hat uh, towards uh, UTR with, with much of what we're doing. So we did, uh, we started doing tournaments, but the most important thing for, um, to know about Conga is our emphasis is going towards beginners, uh, lower players, lower level players and families. Um, Are you speaking my language now? Tennis for children, that's that's our target market too. I am uh, um, convinced that family tennis, family team tennis, uh, where families play other families is one of my, my um, will be one of my more successful programs. All right, sure. I got to hear I got to hear about that because my brain doesn't do anything with that. It's it hears families playing tennis and I can't even picture it. Yeah. On June 4, we'll have a family fun day here in Encino, which is just north of um, Los Angeles. And this family fun day is a few hours of, of um, getting beginner families into interested in tennis. We have a head pen come in with rackets and balls and um, other people come in with product and uh, there will be ice cream and balloons. And we, I'm going around to um, about 75 schools right now. I've visited half of them already. Drop off some postcards to make sure those schools can inform the parents that we'll have that family fun day on June 4. And this will be the beginning, the start of my uh, engagement with families. The families, when the day is over, they will get um, a path, a roadmap what they can do, especially beginners, of course, what they can do now after they had this fun day with us. And we'll point them towards some of the pros that work with us or some of the academies that work with us. And we'll point, point them to the programs I'm setting up for them, like um, beginner match play, um, boosters where they, the lower level players can uh, get experience with their match play. So they get ready for the leaks and, and and other things. So this is um, this is one of my most promising endeavors with um, Conga. Conga, of course. In the meantime, we have uh, positioned ourselves as an environmentally conscious company. I don't know if you've seen that. I saw that the the planting trees thing, right? Yeah, we not only uh, recycle our used balls, but we plant trees for every can of balls we use. And uh, with, with this company, One Tree Planted, uh, we started in April, planted 28 
trees because we use 28 cans of balls. Well done. Nothing small. But our pledge is to plant 1 million trees by the end of 2030. Very ambitious. Some people think I'm an idiot promising something like this, but I think it can be done. If it works, that's great. If it doesn't work, you planted still at least more than 28 trees. Probably planted more trees than anybody else. Correct. And this company, One Tree Planted, is amazing. They have their people in all the major areas where there are forests and where there's um, a need for planting trees, not only in California or in Oregon, but in the Amazon, even in Europe, in all sorts of areas where deforestation is a problem and not enough is being done about it. And we'll do, we do our part for sure. I like that. Because tennis for the longest time hasn't done anything in this regard. It is just a shame how many balls land on landfills every year, like, like hundreds you've been, of millions. You've been working with recycle balls, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we've got a we've got an account with them. Bobby, you've got do you have recycle balls? You got something similar got, at your I, club, right? Where is recycle balls out of? Vermont. That's who Vermont, we use. Yeah. That's who we do it with as well. Yeah. Okay. They, they supply the the uh, the boxes. Yeah. We fill them up and send them on to their plant. Yes. That's who we use. It's yeah. a father and son, I think, that are. Yeah. Yeah. And supposedly they're making shirts and they can make some cool stuff out of the uh, <laughs> out of the the old tennis the balls that they dust. chew it up. Gold gold dust is what they call it. So we'll have to get them on the podcast and talk to them because I've never seen a shirt made out of old tennis balls. So maybe. Uh, Maybe, maybe that's going to be a thing at some point. I was asked yesterday, since, since this is a program that's supported by Wilson, they have their logo on these bins, on these collection bins. I was asked why Wilson is not um, promoting this much, much more. So every club does it. And uh, my answer was because those people in Vermont couldn't, couldn't handle the number of balls coming yeah. there. There's no way. Oh, that is that'd true. be interesting. Their yeah. their facilities can probably handle only so much, and if they get some major national campaign, that's an interesting I think, thought. I think they did like eighty thousand balls last year. Imagine they would get a million balls. They wouldn't know. <laughs> that changes things, doesn't it? <laughs> they would do the same thing. Hey, Bobby. So you got you know you got a one hundred and seventy members at your club. What would happen if you already had if you all of a sudden had ten thousand five hundred and twenty eight members? It's like, uh, no, we can't help you. Yeah, I mean that's an extraordinary amount of tennis balls. <laughs> yes, it that is. That T-shirt would have to get a lot more cost effective. I think that's the and and you know you you hate to say it, even the pandemic, all the indoor playgrounds that they would have built the rubber mats for that are not getting built right now, you know, the, the, everything else going on in the world hasn't helped the situation either. There's only so much you can do with those. And one of their biggest uses people aren't using right now. Tennis balls is of course, a very interesting subject, gentlemen, for many reasons. One of them is of course the shortage of balls. <laughs> you now. can't get them. That's <laughs> and uh, the persistent rumor that um, the, companies have gotten together to check up the prices of the balls. You know how much they are in Germany, right? No. Can they send cans of they sell cans of four balls? Right. And they are anywhere between 15 and 16 dollars or something like that. Oh, that's ridiculous. On sale like 12 dollars a can. Oh, wow. So this must be very very um, interesting for any ball manufacturer 
jack up the price to finally make more money with it. It's not a big money maker. And on the other hand, there is this other issue, and I'm going to write about this in the June newsletter. Um, you look at the claims the TIA makes that we added um, so many million players and <laughs> 22.3 million players. And you look at the balls that were sold last year and it doesn't add up. It doesn't jive, exactly. So when you look at the balls that were sold last year, you think there were there couldn't be more than 10, 15 million players because um, the, the number of balls used is just too low. Our balls sold is just way too low for the number of players they claim that are around and i would assume sorry i don't know much about the the tennis ball sales industry but i would assume when we say there weren't enough tennis balls sold to justify that number of new tennis players i would assume we're checking retail and amazon we're not checking like bobby's account with Wilson because he gets his tennis balls for running a facility or somebody like me that I buy cases at a time. I assume they, they set that aside to say, okay, that's our normal expected spending. And then they, like, I would assume the industry is smart enough to know the difference because I didn't buy as many tennis balls last year because they were expensive. And I was just going to get away with, sorry, kids, you guys aren't getting new tennis balls this year because I couldn't do it. So I even bought less tennis balls, even though I brought more kids into playing. I wonder if those types of situations are accounted for or if I'm, you know, if I'm just an anomaly in that in that area. Well, you have to if you trust the numbers the TIA is uh, is giving you, then then you get what you pay for. <laughs> Um, you know, the, the entire problem, and I talked to the company that is doing the surveys, a Florida company, the entire problem started many, many years ago when they started um, um, counting tennis players and they're using the same model and um, it doesn't work anymore. And I'm going to talk about this a little bit, you know, June issue. Ah. <laughs> how to count tennis players. Yeah, because I've never seen anybody at my my courts with a clipboard. Like, I assume that's there's a, there's an algorithm that puts that together and it's, you know, a guess just like anything else. Okay, just picture this. They're, they are asking 1,500 people a survey. every month, right? 1,500 people. And, and then they are dividing these 1,500 in men, in women, in age groups, and so forth. So what they actually do is they're asking a handful of people, did you play tennis last year? It is just unbelievable. 15, yeah, that's not a number that even helps. Like we, that wouldn't even scale out to Florida, much less the rest of the country, right? Yeah, and the USDA eats it up, of course. They, they <laughs> like high numbers. Oh yeah, good numbers for them is good numbers. They don't care where it comes from. So they have to justify their status of 501c3. Uh, yeah, we just uh, we just filed for hours. We got a new a new uh, project coming out. Bobby and I have been working on for a little while now, and we've got a new five hundred one c three, a new nonprofit coming in, um, and we're excited about that. That's a that's its own conversation, its own world, because that's something I haven't been a part of directly. And everybody's got their their own ideas as to how things should be done, um, and it's fun 
from a from a nonprofit point of view because we look at and I wanted to ask Bobby a quick question because Rich, you're the conversations we've had about leagues, and I think this filters down to the number of players actually playing. Bobby, I saw the other day, and I want to know if you've noticed this or if you've ever actually done the math, that I kept thinking that 80,000 members is what Alta says. So I kept thinking, my gosh, that's a lot of tennis players. And that is a huge league. And why are there only seven teams in my division? And I, I get it. I'm in, I'm in, you know, we're in the double A division, so it's a, it's a smaller thing. But 80,000 players. I did the math. I said, we should have $2 million a year that, that Alta's bringing in. And they're doing what? They're running a few city finals events. And, you know, why is Alta that much better here? And what do they really do? So I went and looked at their, their 990. I said, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to channel my inner rich, and I'm going to go check out their finances. And I, and I went and checked out their 990, and the most recent one I could find was 2019, and they brought in less than $80,000, wow. which translates down to less than 3,200 tennis players in 2019. With a membership of 80,000, and we think there are 80,000 people or close to it paying their dues and playing tennis in an Alta League, but they only brought in $80,000 in 2019. Now, again, this isn't, my, this isn't my expertise as to how that works, so I'm asking this in front of Rich. Hang on, Rich is over here. In my, I'm asking it in front of Rich because I want to ask Bobby. I'm like, do those numbers play out in your mind? They well, they don't, and they're not. I think the first, they're not at anywhere near eighty thousand, and I think they'll tell you that right now. They've they've taken a, a fairly substantial hit. But I I'm going to yield to Rich on how those how those figures extrapolate into what they actually have to report. Is that at the end of the year what they show on the books after everything's been spent? That I don't know. They don't have to um, in the nine ninety. They don't have to spell out how many members they have. If there's membership dues, that has to be um, itemized in their revenues. So if the membership dues were only $80,000, it is highly unlikely that they have 80,000 members, unless they have like 60,000 inactive and the 20,000 didn't pay a lot of money, four bucks each. It's it's twenty five dollars. It's twenty five dollars a year. So I just did the basic math and I said, all right, it's eighty thousand divided by twenty five gets me thirty two hundred. We, we we probably only had thirty two hundred people playing out to, in twenty nineteen. They all use fuzzy math. The US <laughs> does it with the participation. They say you have X number of players, but in reality, when you look at the number, it's X number of registrations and many. And we know now that their player base has gone down tremendously. And, and, and many of those league players play more, may, way more than one league, like four or five or six leagues a year. That's how their numbers are, are still up. But the uh, number of players has gone down tremendously. So what do they have to uh, explain to me with the 990? What do they have to report? What is the, their when they show that 80,000? What is that figure? Where does it come from? Um, like membership dues, they have to spell it out. These are membership dues. These are, they have to spell out every source of revenue, right? Like the USTA has the US Open, they have membership dues and they have other revenues in addition to selling assets, which is a type, which is a, uh, which is a, a very important type of revenue for them in the last few years. And um, 
So this has to be all put into a um, into your tax return, which is the basis for the 990. But is that number a net, or is that no, the gross? No, it's supposed it's supposed to be total revenue. So your total so revenue is, is that gross top revenue? Line. Is it a yes. net revenue? Gross revenue. It is gross before revenue, expenses. Yep. Itemized in sub revenues. How how do they get to the gross revenue? So they're itemizing it. This this is sales of back tax or something, and this is membership dues, and this is these kinds of fees and so forth. T-shirt sales and and then grants from other organizations and so forth. Is so ALTA is, a five hundred one c three? That's what I was going to say. Is ALTA in its entirety of seeing they have a foundation, Sean? That's what I think. I don't know if if ALTA is a five hundred one c three. I think what you've probably looked, I found the foundation nine ninety. That's the foundation, which is not Alta. So that's separate. Okay, that's separate. That's what they've raised then in sponsorships. That has nothing to do with their membership number. Yeah. Uh, okay. You have to be careful when you yeah. look at nine ninety. That's that's yeah. That's what I because I and they've that actually number is is probably going to continue to rise because they've gone more into revenue producing in that area as well but okay. that that's not attached to the, the membership numbers they're down there's no question the membership so numbers I, are down. i just it. found and i just went and checked it out i've got a different tin number 990 atlanta lawn tennyson's association incorporated and it looks more like 1.4 million that now you can do divide that's, that by 25 yep that's program service revenue so that's going to be Different from investment income, other revenue total. Okay, so program service is probably their memberships. Yeah, yeah one point three six six. Okay, that is a little more along the lines of what I would expect because in that case, I think that's closer to sixty some odd thousand. Sixty, right? Exactly. So let's see. One. Ask me about tennis ambassador people. Tennis and tennis ambassador. Someone's got to ask me. Please, well, tell us about. You mean the tennis ambassador? Who? That's the way the companies say. I'm going to, in lieu of paying you, I'll I'm make you a tennis you, ambassador. Or I'm giving you an exclusive right now. <laughs> ah, I like. Well, hey, you know what, Rich? Just start talking. We don't have to ask that. Hey, Rich. Is there anything you'd like? To, we should do that, right? Hang on. That comes uh, on. What's, that definitely what's the question? Up. Hey, Rich. So if there's anything you'd like to bring up that we haven't asked you already on the podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah, there is something. It's called what you got? Ambassador. And um, it hasn't been published yet. It will be uh, published. And um, uh, we, we do press releases between the French Open and Wimbledon. And Tennis Ambassador is my brainchild. I was able to get three companies behind this program. And we, we are sending packages of product to deserving entities, like for instance, a deserving 501c3 that works in an underserved area and it has very little financial means. Um, this will be a good target for it or um, like maybe an individual, a player, a, a young player who has a lot of potential, but the parents can't buy balls and this kind of thing. We are looking for 12 entities in the next 12 months. We found a first. It'll start in July. We found our first. It's a 501c3 
in an underserved area of Chicago. What these 12 entities will get uh, during the next, during the following 12 months, starting in July. One Slingerback, complete ball machine. One Billie Jean King Eye Coach, complete. One adult tennis racket from head, one junior tennis racket from head, and one case of pen tennis balls. Well, that's fantastic. It fits our what we like our thought train of thought to of how to improve, mm -hmm. rather than what the USTA does. So yes, like like that a lot. So I'm I'm very happy that these three companies, Slinger, which is now they changed their name, of course, they're not Slinger anymore. Uh, Slinger and um, Head Pen and uh, Billy Jean King Eye Coach, that they committed to this, and um, and I'm leading this entire program i like that and that's and that's so good because those are those are things that we're doing for other people usta always has these grand plans of some magical way that they're going to bring in more tennis players to their leagues but i don't see as much and obviously rich you write about things like this all the time and bobby and i go back and forth talking about you know the question of how do you make tennis more accessible or how do you help those that want to play tennis but can't afford to play tennis and it's yeah. fun to hear of a program that actually has a chance to to do that to help people there isn't an extensive cost to it in the grand scheme of things and you're actually making that work that's fantastic yeah when you mention the usda of course it is um the the, the real big problem is that much of the money they are making is being used up in administration for instance, sure. their, their budget, of course, in uh, in Lake Nona is like the salaries are millions and millions of dollars every year. That's why you start a nonprofit so you can get rich. It's not about helping people; it's about getting rich. Come on, rich! Look at just at the uh, the money they're sending to the sections every year. I think. Oh the, yeah. Last year they sent sixty-two million dollars, I think, to the to all the sections. Ninety-five percent of that money is being used up in administration costs. That's insane, and that's the kind of thing when when they percent can reach the grassroots. Actually, make thing. it down. We have it's the nonprofit people that that check, say the nonprofit people. There are there are organizations out there that rank nonprofits by how much actually how much of their funds their funding actually gets through to the end user. You know, actually gets a toothbrush to a you know a child in the mountains like. It, how much money goes through and I think it was what was the number anything less than 75% or you know there was a certain number rich do you know that like what that expectation is that you're a good organization or you're just an organization that's paying your people too much for my tennis ambassador program I have set that number to 25% yeah it's a good number um, and the, the first organization in Chicago they are below 25% when I looked at some of the um, large, very large tennis uh, 501c3s that are out there which, and doing a good job, and I don't want to mention any names, but some of them have uh, are in the 80, 90% of administrative costs. That's insane. Well, when, when your CEO of a tennis 501c3 makes a million dollars, I think there's something wrong with it. I agree. I mean, I'll send my resume. I'm happy to have that job. <laughs> but it's like, oh, if you can, it's great work if you can get it, right? But then you think about it and go, all right, are you really 
did you read the mission statement? Is the mission statement to pay my bills or is it to get tennis no. balls where they need to get? Is it to they do what we sections. really want to do? You know, when, uh, when the, the um, John Callan, when he made $303,000 a year um, for a section that I think, how much money do they make? $15, $17 million or so a year? It is a big number. Is It is fine, fine with me. But when the section only makes uh, uh, has a re has revenues of like four thousand four million dollars and loses money and the and the CEO makes three hundred and ten million thousand uh, dollars a year, then there's something wrong with it in my mind. That's why I agree. I'm talking about these things. We well, and it goes full circle what you said earlier. The, the, this closed button. There's only one thing the USTA does that makes money. So th that's the other unfortunate part. That which which thing is that? That's the U.S. Open. Well, you're mistaken too. Oh, really? All right. The, the, they're making a lot of money, but they're not making a lot of profit. Oh, no, I, I agree with I I understand. I understand television, but I mean, that is their biggest line item. I agree with that. Yeah. Unfortunately, they don't they don't really know how to run it. Otherwise, you would say a four hundred and eighty million dollars endeavor should make you at least, let's say, 50 million dollars profit. Right. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't. In some years it doesn't it, it loses money in some years it makes up to 10 million dollars and and it's not enough that that should be much more in profits agree that maybe they're buying too many rolexes for their ceos yeah <laughs> well, i guess he probably you gets his it. for free you got it mr rolex is on <laughs> well the new ceo so, yeah to reference one of rich's recent articles yes um but and I, and I know we could talk forever, and I like that. Rich, I've got, um, I've got one last question, and uh, you, you know it's coming. So hopefully you've, if, you, if you read the email or if you remember it, it was a little while ago that we scheduled this. But, if I was um, king? If you, were, if you were king of tennis, is there, is there any one thing or is there something that you would do that you could change if, uh, if Rich Nair was in charge of all tennis, all things tennis? I would um, mandate the USTA to go back to their mission statement. I would mandate for a USTA executive to not make more than $300,000, $400,000 for the highest executives. And I would mandate the sections to do the same and mandate them to do to at least send 25 to 30% of their grants from the USTA into the grassroots tennis, into the people on the ground, uh, grow the sport. That's what I would do. I like that in your in your wheelhouse. It is the thing you know about. That is because uh, we, you know, Bobby would give a different question because his wheelhouse is a different thing. And for me, it's a, you know different answer. I like that. We get a, we get a we get a new fresh answer from everybody we talk to. And uh, if I had to guess, it would be something about USTA and money. <laughs> what is the USTA's mission statement? The end goal of what Ooh, I'm I can look that up. That is, I want to make tennis more affordable for people. And in order to make it more affordable is for them to invest more money in in grassroots. Well, and so that's one of the things. So you say make it more affordable. What was the thing that Doug, Doug Lee said, Bobby? He said uh, he wants to make it more accessible, I think, was the phrase that he used. And I think those things are fascinating even just as a concept to say, okay, well, what does more affordable mean? Does that mean tennis balls are cheaper? Or does that mean you got to take money from – 
one place and give it to another place? What does accessible mean? Does that mean we have to unlock private places and let other people like there are a lot of interesting questions where everybody says, hey, I'd like to do this. But it sounds like, Rich, you've got an actual action item to say, you know what, we can make it more affordable. And a lot of that money is hanging out in CEO Rolex's bank account right now that and potentially should be filtering down. Player development. So many people in, or so many talented young kids are out there who could very well be uh, be trained and uh, and become really good, really good. Go on the tour, but they don't. Their parents don't have the money, and they don't want to travel to all these USTA events. They can't afford it. At the same time, they are spending twenty-two million dollars or twenty-one million dollars on player development. Use that money. Give it out to the uh, to the the pros that have those talented kids. There's many. Mm, I like. Oh, I think we've heard that idea before. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's an idea that hits close to home. You're exact. We concur wholeheartedly. And I think also goes back again, full circle. Excess because of different places mean different things. You have you can't have one model because. You, the, the park system in Georgia, Atlanta area is unbelievable. So tennis courts are not an issue. We have plenty of tennis courts. Like you said, now, how do we get programming at those tennis courts? How do we get pros at that? So rather than say we're going to build tennis courts, now we got to give the money to an individual pro to be on site to say, I'm going to build this area. So the model is going to be very fluid. And that seems to be something that is not, you know, adjustments and, and thinking on the fly is not the strength of any bureaucracy. And, and give, give those pros money to go into high schools, and, which is a big, big area that needs improvement. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because most of the high, I mean, and, and this is a failing across all sports in this country, unfortunately, really the only sport in high school that holds any significant position anymore is football. Everything else has been co-opted by private leagues. Yeah. So, you know, at least the USDA can and say that we, we've, we're one of many in that capacity. But in, in my business, knowing my business, where I've done so well at my club is really developing that high school level player that isn't going to look, isn't necessarily looking to play college, but wants to do something and wants to be a part of it. That is, is a great, you know, all the, all the pros are looking for kids who are going to be, you know, play Wimbledon. Well, guys, again, the numbers say, you're not likely to find that in two or three or four or five lifetimes. So where is not only the money, but the, where you can do the most positive for the entire game and for people's lives, it's always going to be at the lower levels because there's more people who are going to play at that level. And yeah. I can tell you guys, I'm, I'm going to schools right now from high schools, elementary schools, middle schools in the area and give them a postcard and invite them to this tennis event I have for families. I can't tell you how good the reception is there. They, these people have never heard anyone inviting their families to a free tennis event and to induce, introduce tennis to their families. This is unheard of. So everyone is happy. Everyone is, is um, excited and thinks this is great. So I, I expect a lot of families to show up. If not, I'm going to eat my hat. <laughs> well, and in that case, so is that is that a free you you offer a free event? Is that your volunteer hours, or is that something that you've been able to fund some way? Because I love the idea of free events, but there aren't a lot of people out there that are 
capable of or willing to offer their time for free? It all goes with my main principle um, in, in conga sports. We have three stakeholders in conga sports, player, the club, and the sponsor. We are shifting the economic model from the player to the sponsor. So for instance, HEAD is a sponsor in our program. If someone signs up for a $50 a year membership in Conga, they'll get a $50 gift certificate from HEAD for HEAD product. Okay? If I do a tournament and it costs $60 to uh, sign up for the tournament, I'm looking for um, a tennis store in the area, a tennis shop in the area to give that same player a $60 gift coupon for their store. So they get new people into the store that way. Um, at the same time, when I do an event like this, the courts are donated by the concessionaire of that park, of that public park. Uh, a friend of mine who runs a tennis program in uh, Woodland Hills and who has uh, is the concessionaire at this park. So he's donating the um, courts and one or two pros for this event. In in return, the families, uh, when when we're done with this uh, two hour, three hour event, the families get a roadmap from me, what they should do, what they can do as a family afterwards. And one of the items is go to his club or his facility and to his pros and start booking clinics and lessons. So this is the sponsorship thing that is the, the main idea behind Conga, uh, to shift the economic model from the player more to a sponsor. Very well received, by the way. That's good. Well, good you question. have a couple of people who completely agree with you that you're speaking with. <laughs> yeah. And you'll be seeing more of us doing similar things in, in the not too yeah. distant future. We just signed up Big Five Sport Boarding Goods as a sponsor for this event. And I hope to be able to get, uh, since since my plan starting next year is to expand into other states and to be nationwide by 2025. Of course, uh, having a national sponsor would be great. Well, there you have it. We want to thank Rejuvenate for the use of the studio. Be sure to check out the Rejuvenate Wellness is a Journey podcast at rejuvenate.com forward slash listen. Check out our other episodes at atlantatennispodcast.com. Also, find us at Atlanta Tennis Podcast on social media. Let us know what you think about our conversations, but also click that follow button. Whether you listen to every episode or just want to listen periodically, you can follow in your podcast app, which helps us keep the show going. With that, we're out. See you next time.